people um, from lostness through the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, dependence upon Him in prayer, to uh, to Lord Jesus Christ and growing in Christ. And we we worked through uh, a diagram uh, a, a couple um, a couple uh, weeks ago here, where we we talked about where. Uh, people uh, here were were changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were on this side of the cross, and they be maybe different degrees here of of, of 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 their journey toward Jesus Christ and salvation, and then on the other side of the cross, as they've come to Christ and been translated from the, um, the, the 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 kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, now growing toward Christ until one day when they enter eternity, whether through their death or through Jesus' return, uh, they spend their lifetime worshiping Jesus Christ for all eternity. And uh, everybody is on one part of that spectrum, one way or the other. In the last couple times, he looked at different aspects of lostness. Being a skeptic, someone who is not curious, not hungry uh, to know the truth about Jesus Christ and how Paul engaged them in Acts chapter uh, uh, 17, the actual previous chapter here we're going to look in today. And then we looked last week at the curious, um, those who who um, our hearts have been uh, um, uh, searching here for the truth. And how Jesus engages the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And he invites all those who are trying to find their hope in the wrong things to go bring their husbands. Bring their husbands to Jesus. In other words, bring the, in that specific case, bring the things that were, that this woman was trying to find a fulfillment with and lay them before Jesus' feet and see the reality of life uh, without Jesus and where that leads, and then life with Jesus as a living water who satisfies. So that's what we looked at last time. And so today, um, we're going to look at the uh, the aspect here of believer and helping uh, people who might be curious, uh, grow, uh, be, uh, have an encounter with Jesus Christ through His Gospel, where they become a believer. And they firm that up and they understand what that means and, and, and they are, they are, they are children of God and then helping those who are believers then grow into their identity here as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This passage in first, uh, in Acts chapter 18 gives such a picture here of, of what it is to be a father through the apostle Paul. Dads, our calling as fathers is to be a prophet, a priest, a provider, and a protector. Um, God has given us that responsibility in our families, not to be passive in those things, but to be a prophet, to declare out the Word of God in our families, uh, to be a priest, to, to, to care for the souls of those that He has entrusted, to represent God to them, uh, to, to bring them before the throne room of God, to be providers, provide what's necessary for the family to function, and certainly in physical things, but in also the spiritual things in their home. And then to be the protectors of their home, from cradle uh, ultimately to the grave, right? Or to when we release them as arrows here into adulthood. And Paul was a single man, yet he gives such a clear testimony of those very things, those very uh, evidences of what it means to be a spiritual father in his role in the church from their new birth to maturity in Jesus Christ. And dads and church, we can learn from this as we've been called to be make disciple makers in life. As we're working through these stages, those who are skeptics, those who are curious, and now those who are believers, I want to ask you this question as well. Where are you? Where are you and what is your next step? 
What is your next step of growth? See, God has for each one of us here a next step. There's no such thing as neutral. There's no such thing as staying still. Paul says in Philippians 3, I'm pressing on, I'm moving ahead. As, this, as the hymn writer said, we're moving to, to higher ground. We're growing in Jesus here. And so what is your next step? If you are someone who is not hungry for Jesus, your next step is to begin investigating Jesus. If you're someone who's curious about Jesus and want to know more, uh, but you have not moved to, to put your dependence, your full trust in who Jesus Christ is, God's call for you out of His love is to come and believe. Whosoever will may come. Find the living waters. Drink of them. Uh, uh, find Jesus here in His Word. And if you are a believer and you've come to Jesus Christ, and you are someone who um, uh, is, is dependent on being fed from others, and you don't have a sense of what it is to, to, to be fed on your own in the Word of God, God's call to you is to grow, and He has given people in this congregation to help you grow and do that, because He does not want any of us to sit still here in laxivity. And so Jesus is calling all of us to become closer to Jesus. Now, as we look at uh, what would a believer say, how would we identify what, what, a, what a believer is? So this is somebody who obviously understands God exists, who understands that God loves him, who believes their selfish thoughts, their actions, and their attitudes have broken their relationship with God. And Jesus has God, and he has come to fix that through His death on the cross. And His death and resurrection restores, upon faith in that, restores their relationship to God and gives new life with Him. And this new life means that Jesus is at the center of my life now. And Jesus has called a believer into a community of Christians, a church. And our responsibility as a church is to help each other, along with witnessing the lost and helping them to get to Jesus. Our responsibility as a church is to help one another become more and more like Jesus. To learn Christ and to unlearn the things in our lives that are not like Christ. This individual might not feel very comfortable uh, uh, or understand uh, how to pray or understand how to read the Bible on their own and study it. They don't, might not know where to start here. And so that's why God gives a church to help grow here. And so uh, just think of, uh, of you um, as, as, as fathers. Uh, you would not expect your newborn to know how to change their own diaper, right? You would not expect your newborn to know how to pick up the toys. And so there's a, there's, there's a nurturing that goes on there. There's the growing. There's responsibilities that are gained here. Um, and, and so it is uh, with our discipling relationships here. So that's what we're referring to here. And, um, and, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not putting a false divide here between a believer and a disciple. I want you to understand I'm referring to somebody who's new in the faith who needs to understand what their role is as a disciple of Jesus Christ here. And so, um, this is, this is a, uh, a, a stage here uh, to take uh, people through to help them understand that the Bible is their primary authority. The Word of God is their primary authority. Um, they are to grow more and more into commitment to Jesus Christ by His grace, by faith in His Word. Their identity in Christ is not something that just is, a, is an abstract truth, but it's something to experience as well. That I am in Jesus. I abide and remain in Jesus. He's the vine. I'm the branches. 
Um, this is an opportunity for them to be able in the, to take some steps here of sharing their faith. Before Jesus came into my life, this is who I was. When Jesus came into life, this is who this is what He did for me, and this is who He's changing me into. These people need to understand that the curse of sin is broken, and the process of growing in Christ is many times painful, isn't it? And it's very important for them to integrate into the community of Jesus Christ to have relationships with someone who nurtures them and helps them grow. Some of you are, uh, I hope all of you, but I know not everybody's had these opportunities here, but some, many of you are recipients, uh, recipients of people who invested and nurtured you when you became a new believer. They taught you the Word of God. They taught you the basics. They taught you uh, what it means to have a prayer life. They taught you what it means to have a, a, a time with God's Word. They taught you what it means to engage with other believers. They taught you physical, uh, uh, concrete examples of what it is to practice the one another's of Scripture. Um, they taught you what life with Jesus Christ is. They taught you what it is to connect with God through personal prayer, study, and, and, and how that fuels what it is in life. Here, and they may have even taught you, and they should have, uh, how to help others do that as well. Well, in Acts chapter 18, we're not going to hit every single verse here, but we are going to hit the process here. You might not see it right by reading it, but in this Acts chapter 18, you see the process here of people moving from uh, belief, being baptized, being grown, and then released here for that process to continue. So the first thing I want us to understand here is the first step here is to believe. To believe. Look in, look in um, uh, what Paul, what the Word of God uh, gives us here in verse 8. And Crispus, the chief ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his house. And many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed. Believed. So friends, if, if you have come to Jesus Christ here, you need, to, you need to know what that means, right? You need, to, you need to have that clarified in your mind so you know what you're standing on here. And one of the verses that God uses to help us understand what that means is a wonderful verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. You see, that word believe sometimes can be so vague the way we use it in the world today, right? I believe in UFOs, or I believe in Santa Claus, or I believe in the Tooth Fairy, or I believe in this particular political party, or I believe in that. The word believe in Scripture is stronger than that. But first, I want you to understand what you're believing. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. When someone becomes a believer, they come to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 puts it in such a, a, a distinct way. For He hath made Him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. In other words, Jesus stood as your representative. At the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve to take. And Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, the Bible says. But it doesn't stop there because when you put your faith in what Jesus has done for you, the Scripture says He made you, He made you to be the righteousness of God in Him. So Jesus is now your representative and you receive the perfect goodness of God, the perfect goodness of Jesus Christ credited to your account. So God now looks at you as perfectly righteous, never having sinned, always having obeyed. He chooses to look at you through that, through what his son has accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. So Christ represented you in the cross and now 
Christ is in you. The righteousness of Christ. Christ is in you. And you have received the very life of God in you. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The life of God in you. Eternal life. You're alive in God. And that word that's in, in Acts chapter 18, believe, is the, is the Greek word, pistuo. And what it means, according to the Greek lexicons, is this. That you are so convinced of what you say you believe that you're willing to bow down and act on it. Let me give you an illustration of what I mean here. Um, there's not a lot of these around here. There's a few. Uh, there's some elevators around here. And if you look closely at many of the elevators that you will ride here or other places, you'll see an elevator that bears the name of Otis. Otis Elevators. They've been the industry standard for more than 150 years. Elisha Otis didn't invent the elevator, but he did devise the braking system that ensures that the elevator stops and is safe. You see, at the time when elevators were invented, they were pretty much just open platforms and they'd come apart and people would be seriously injured, of course, if that cable broke. And without a trustworthy braking system, elevators were earthbound and building heights were pretty much limited to about six stories. If you look at the history of New York City and you look at some of the early days, it wasn't until the 1920s and 30s that they really started building high buildings. And that's, this is part of the reason. Uh, but with this braking system, the sky was the limit. And so this braking system for elevators made modern skyscrapers possible. But initially, Elisha Otis had some trouble selling his elevators. And then in 1854, he made a creative sales pitch at the Crystal Palace Exhibition in Manhattan, New York. Every hour at the exposition, which was the World's Fair in its day, became known as the World's Fair later on, Otis would step into his machine and he gave the, an order to his assistant to cut the rope of the elevator. And the crowd would hold its breath. Of course, the brake would kick in. The elevator stopped and Otis would announce, all safe, gentlemen, all safe. And it was with this demonstration that he quickly sold his first three elevators for $300 apiece. Today, New York City alone has 70,000 elevators. Right, Emily? <laughs> and it's estimated that the equivalent of the world's population travels on an Otis elevator, escalator, or moving walkway every three days. Every three days. But do you see the difference between knowing about something and being able to trust and depend on something? Putting your faith in something. So you could say, well, I know that elevator is going to hold me, Right? But until that assistant cut the rope there and Otis demonstrated, he was demonstrating what true faith is, right? It's a true dependence. It's a true dependence. Or consider a bottle of penicillin. Um, Alexander Fleming uh, invented it, and it was first used there in Great Britain. And it's responsible for saving countless lives, countless individual lives, uh, who people would have died from some kind of blood poisoning without penicillin. And faith is like this. You get that, you get that penicillin. You got an infection. You get that penicillin. And you look at that bottle and you accept that that bottle exists. Right? Then, and you trust. You may trust in its ability to cure blood poisoning. But nothing changes till you receive that drug. To receive that penicillin that, it can, that that bottle contains and allow that, that to destroy the bacteria that are slowly killing you. Otherwise, it's not faith, right? It's not faith till you receive it. And so it is with Jesus Christ. We can say He exists. We say, yeah, I know He can save me from my sins. But until we depend on Jesus and we receive Jesus as many as received Him, 
They are made the sons of God. So we have to uh, 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 take that penicillin and, and receive it by faith, by dependence here. And faith links us with the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the availability for it. It unites us with the risen Christ. It makes available to us everything that Jesus gained through His death and His resurrection. Or you could illustrate it this way. In the 1850s, there was another crazy guy who liked heights. Uh, his name was Charles Blondin. And some of you know this story. He, would, he stretched a tightrope across the Niagara Falls. And, um, and when he did that, there were people who doubted that he could cross Niagara Falls on the tightrope. But he did. But he did. And then they knew he could. Uh, and then uh, he... Uh, uh, made a wheelbarrow with a with a wheel that would um, have a have a part cut out on it where it could roll on that tightrope here and, and weighted it with about two hundred pounds of weight and and he said do you think I can push this wheelbarrow across the across the tightrope and people were I don't know and he demonstrated it and he did of course and then he said how many of you think I can carry a person in this wheelbarrow across the tightrope on Niagara Falls. And by then, everybody said, yeah, you can do that. You can do that. And then he pointed to one guy in the crowd and said, all right, your turn. Get in the wheelbarrow. Right? That's the difference between, between what faith is and what knowledge is. Right? Knowledge knows that Blondine could carry that person across in the wheelbarrow, but you had to get in the wheelbarrow. You had to receive the offer, right? And so that's what believing is. And so uh, uh, those who are believers need to clarify what they understand that that, 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 that is, that is a, a trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus has represented me, and I am Him. I receive the Holy Spirit inside me. I am saved from my sins. Now Paul would explain it like this. I have a new identity. And here's what he says in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this in verse Philippians 3.9, And be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's what belief is. That's what belief is. It's convinced of what God has said, and I'm going to trust, and I'm going to rest in that, depend on that. I'm going to receive that. Not just know it up here, but I'm going to receive that. I'm going to welcome God. This is such a wonderful thing because it means we have a new identity. I'm told that there was a baseball card that came out years ago um, that would have three players on that baseball card, and they called them future stars, future stars. There's one particular one that a few years ago was worth about $100. It's probably worth a lot more right now. And there's three players on that card. Their first player is Jeff Schneider. And this is a car that says future stars. These were early on in their careers, and people projecting they would have great careers. Jeff Schneider. Schneider played one year professional baseball. He pitched in 11 games, and he gave up 13 earned runs in those 11 games. It really turned out to be a star. Their second player is Bobby Bonner. He played four years of baseball. He only appeared in 61 games with eight runs batted and in zero home runs. A little better, not, certainly not a future star. 
The third person on that card here played 21 years for the Baltimore Orioles, appeared in 3,001 games, he came to bat 11,551 times, collected 3,184 hits, 430 home runs, and batted in 1,695 runs. Anybody know who that is? Baseball fans? Cal Ripken Jr. Cal Ripken Jr. He was a Hall of Famer. Now imagine... If you met Bobby Bonner and he shook your hand and boasted, do you know that my baseball card's worth over $100? You'd laugh, right? Because you know that worth of that card has nothing to do with him. And that's how it is when we come to Christ. And we point to our works, or we point to our stats, and we say, is that good enough? Listen, if you want to hold your stats up to God, you don't stand a chance. But that's the good news about belief in Jesus Christ. When you hold it up to Jesus Christ, Jesus' record becomes yours. And your baseball card is a whole lot worth more because of Him and because of who He is. Bobby Bonner and Jeff Schneider's baseball card is worth 100 bucks, But it's not because of them. It's because of what someone else has done. And so that's what believing means. You could also illustrate it this way. If you had two chairs, one here and one here, and, and you, you would have to you'd say to the person sitting in this chair over here, do you believe this chair over here can hold you? That person is absolutely convinced that it holds them. They know it up here. But until they get out of that chair that they were sitting in and sit over in this one, they're not demonstrating true dependence, true faith. And so believing means that we are anchored in Jesus Christ. And so maybe uh, you, you are someone here who identifies as a believer. You've come to Jesus Christ. Have that firm. Know, know what you're depending on. Uh, know that without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is your representative. He stands in your place and He gives you all the fullness of who He is. And so when these Corinthians and Crispus here believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with all their house, they have transferred their dependence on Christ alone. On Christ alone. I wonder if those of you who have moved past the stage of just simply uh, turning to Jesus Christ and being a new believer, maybe you know someone who needs to be firmed up and clarified as to what this means. Show them that, 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 that uh, of, of the truth of the gospel and the representation of Jesus Christ and, and, and what it means to be in the Jesus chair. In the Jesus chair. But also I want you to notice that Paul here is recorded as after... They believed, um, verse 8 says, and they heard, they believed, and it says, and they were baptized. They were baptized. The second thing we need to know here about becoming a believer is that the next step is to be baptized. In Acts chapter 2, after Peter preaches his message at Pentecost, Luke records that all those that, were, that, that repented and believed, all those who responded to the gospel call here, they were then baptized, and then added to the church. So, baptism follows belief. That's why we're, we believe in believer's baptism here. Right? Uh, uh, what, what does baptism mean? Well, baptism, as we see it demonstrated in Scripture, the word baptize is a Greek word, actually, that means to immerse. And it's the idea, and it's practiced in Scripture as someone who has gone under the water, and they come out of the water as a public profession. It doesn't wash their sins away. That's what belief in Jesus Christ does. But it's your public profession here. And when you come uh, in, into the water, you're saying, my old life is dead with Christ. 
And who come out of the water and say, I'm alive. I'm re- this is represented here. Coming out of the water, I'm alive with Christ. And I'm identifying with Christ's community. That's why nobody baptizes themselves. Nobody says, well, I'm going to get baptized today. And they walk down to, to the pond here and they go up to their waist and they duck their feet down to under and come up and say, I'm baptized. No, somebody else baptizes them. Why? Because God wants us to understand that when you're united with Christ, you're also united with His body. And the body has a responsibility to nurture those people and help them grow into what it means to be identified with Christ. And so baptism is saying, I am following Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus, the cross before me, the world behind me. Someone told me about a missionary uh, Uh, who served in East Malaysia. And while he was there, during the summer, he was part of a small church there. And at one of the church's worship services, there was a teenage girl who came uh, forward to announce her decision to follow Jesus and be baptized. And during the service, uh, this this missionary here noticed some, some old suitcases, some old luggage leaning against the wall of the church building. And so he asked the pastor about it. And the pastor pointed to the girl who had just been baptized and told Denison, this, this missionary, he said, her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again, so she brought her luggage. She brought her luggage. Friends, that's what baptism is. I, am mar- I have been marked out here. I identify with Jesus Christ and His church. And that's the next step. And I wonder this morning, if you have professed to know Jesus Christ, then that is the command of Jesus Christ is your next step to be baptized. It's not just a suggestion, it's the command of Jesus Christ. If you know Him, why wouldn't you want to be identified with Him, right? If you know Him, make, let, let people know. And that's the next step. So if you haven't been baptized, and you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are, you are resting in Jesus Christ alone, that's your next step. That's God's command for you. And uh, I have a couple kids in my house who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ here through... It's interesting, all, all three kids who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ in my home, God has allowed our family devotion time to be the time that they, um, His Word is sunk deep into their hearts and probably reinforced many of the things they're learning in Sunday school and other things. And they have come uh, to a place of conviction of their sin and called upon the Lord Jesus Christ because of His amazing mercy and grace. And they know that their next step is to be baptized. And so I have two. And so I'd love to add some other people. To that, people who have declared, you know what? Jesus Christ died for my sins. I am dead with Christ. My old life is dead, and I am risen with Christ, and I'm going to profess that in public baptism. And so please speak to me if, you're, uh, if you know that's your next step here. And, and, and disciples, help people understand the importance of baptism as, they, uh, as you lead into Christ and they become believers, understand the importance of baptism. They say that. On the wall of uh, President uh, Lyndon Johnson's White House office, there hung this framed letter written by General Sam Houston. Some of you know about the the story in Texas here. Um, To to Johnson's, he had this letter that uh, Houston wrote to Johnson's great-grandfather Baines more than 100 years earlier. Because Baines, apparently, had led Sam Houston to Jesus Christ. And Sam Houston became a changed man. He was pretty coarse. He was pretty rough, pretty belligerent. And God changed him being a very peaceful and content man through the gospel. And the day came for Houston to be baptized, which was an incredible event for anybody who had known Sam Houston before Jesus. And after his baptism, 
uh, Houston offered to pay half the local minister's salary. And someone asked him why. He said, well, my pocketbook was baptized too. And that's the truth of what it means to follow Jesus, right? Baptism doesn't save you. It didn't wash Sam Houston's sins away, but he understood that all I have belongs to Jesus. By faith, my life is the Lord's, no matter what the cost. I've decided to follow Jesus, the world behind me and the cross before me. But then I'd also like you to notice the third thing in this passage here of moving uh, these believers along. They understood, they relied on Jesus Christ. That's what it means when they believed. They were baptized. And then, in verse 11, I want you to see, as Paul received revelation from the Lord, to continue there and not to leave these people. Verse 11 says, And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. A year and six months. And so the third thing I want you to understand is that there were part, they were part now of a recognizable body of believers. And so we clarify, we identify in baptism, and we're unified. We become a church. Become a church. Acts 2, Acts 2 says they were added to the church. And then you read what Acts 2.38 through 42 through 46 says. It starts to flesh out what that means when they're part of the church. Part of the church means they were getting together. They were fellowshipping together. They were growing in the Lord. They were practicing the Lord's Supper together. Uh, they, they loved one another. They met needs. And this verse here tells us that Paul taught them 18 months. He was among them. Among them. These people who came to Jesus. So that means they are a recognizable local body. They were a representative of, uh, of Jesus. They were an assembly. They were a commitment to grow together in Jesus. Uh, they were an embassy of Jesus, of Jesus' kingdom. And so, friends, after you believe and you are baptized, it's important to become part of a local church. Commit to the local church. We do that here through for, uh, a church membership. It means that you're accountable to each other. You're accountable to the pastoral leadership of the church. You serve the local body. You united its mission to make disciples. You practice the one another's of the New Testament. You grow in Christ together. Because the church is important. Ephesians 5 says the church is Jesus' bride. And how dare we push to the outskirts what God has put at the center. Being Jesus' bride isn't speed dating. It's a commitment. It's a covenant to one another. And so they're brought into a body here. And then notice also, of course, the teaching. He taught them. The word is instruct. He established them. You see that in verse 11. He continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And you can see that in verse 18. And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while. He strengthened. He showed believers what it means to be disciples, to press on, to grow, to help them move to the next stage with the goal of Christ being formed in them. You might say, well, what things did he teach them? Read the letters he wrote to the churches. That would be a good first, uh, first study, wouldn't it? Uh, I'm sure he, he reminded them again of the gospel message. That they don't move on from it. They move deeper into it. Uh, he reminded them that, that there, are, uh, there, there are two ways to live. There's the world's way that's pressing you into its mold, and there's a new way of Jesus Christ, and we're to be rooted and grounded in Christ. I'm sure he talked to them about life in the Spirit, like Romans 6 through 8, Galatians 5. Uh, life in the Spirit, Romans 12, renewing our minds. 
He taught them how to relate to other people who might have different convictions in Romans 14 and 15. He talked about the church being the centerpiece of Christ's plan in Ephesians. And the church is a family of families and how to live within this believing family and living within a family of families and how to set life's priorities in light of that. He talked about the mission of the church. Participating in the mission worldwide. Participating in the mission of the church to make disciples at home. To use our opportunities, Colossians 4, to, uh, to, to those that are without, those that are outside the church, to have a speech that is seasoned with grace. To proclaim the gospel. Uh, using our homes as mission centers like Lydia and others in the New Testament did. He taught them how to cultivate these, these uh, 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 rhythms of abiding in Jesus. That Christ dwells in our hearts, Ephesians 3, 14-21. The habits that we need to have in our individual lives, in Christ, in our, in our families. The roles of fathers, the roles of wives, the roles of, of children, the roles in our work. That we ultimately work for Jesus Christ. How to enjoy our marriages and, and, and what it is to, 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 to be the husband, what it is to be the wife, what it is to be the father, what it is to be the mother. And to pass on those beliefs. On and on, etc. Here, those are the things that he would have he would have fortified them and taught them in, and then finally he teaches them to glorify Jesus Christ. This isn't explicit in the passage, but I want you to understand that everything Paul's doing here is for God's glory. It's for God's glory. Remember why we make disciples, so that the Lamb of God receives the reward of His suffering on the cross and the glory of His resurrection and ascension as the Most High. All men and women, all boys and girls, and the capacity that God has called you to as good stewards from what God has given you, we make disciples of those in our spheres of influence by sharing the word of truth and in relationship, depending on the Spirit of God in prayer until Jesus returns and we train them to do the same. And I'm going to have Vic stand here, and he's going to share a testimony of just how the Lord gave him an opportunity um, to lead uh, an individual recently to the Lord Jesus Christ, a new believer. Uh, if you're loud enough, you can be back there. If you're not, you can be here. About three weeks ago, I contracted a
kept listening to the guy. I said, okay. So he came in and I said, look, I, I have no crew here. I'm going to load this truck. You're going to have to wait till 3 o'clock. And he didn't want to do that because he wanted to unload and get somewhere else in the middle of his truck and he wants to make money. Man. And I started to get a little mad again because I, you know, I was the second. 